We'll be looking at James chapter 2. In uh, 1973, there was some, uh, some research. This is really a clever project that these guys came up with. They wanted to, they wanted to research these uh, theological students at Princeton Theological Seminary. And so they created this really unique test that they were going to throw in front of these guys. So, and what they did is they gathered all these theology students and they told them, we need you to develop a message on the Good Samaritan, okay? And in a little bit here, you're going to go across campus and you've got to deliver this message on the Good Samaritan. And you're familiar with that story Jesus gave. You know, the question was, well, who in the world is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you a little story so you can figure this out. You remember when there was this guy who got all beat up and he is all wounded and and sick and hurt and he's laying there on the road and the priest and the Levite, they, they look at him and they kind of step over and pass him by. And then, of course, the the Good Samaritan who, by the way, the Jews hated Samaritans. Uh, anyway, he, he comes and he heals them all up and takes them into an inn, pays for everything. And so they're, they're very familiar with the story. And so they're working, you know, and, and doing their message and kind of thinking through the outline and their application. And then uh, part of the research was to actually tell, send them on their way. They kind of went one by one to go across campus to go and give this message. They were told what location. Some of them were actually told that, oh, my you're running late. You've, you've got to hurry up. You've, in fact, you're running late. You've got to go and get across campus and deliver that message right away. I'm, I'm sorry. And so what you're kind of what they're doing is probably just infusing these future pastors with a you're a day late dollar short mentality. You know, nothing like infusing a little panic in their life. And so, oh, really? And so they grab their Bible and their notes and they make their way across campus. Now, these researchers, they weren't really interested about the message they were going to preach, although that's what the students thought, like, oh, here's my grand opportunity. I'm going to be, in, you know, reviewed by all these great pastors and theologians. And so they're all focused on the message, right? What they didn't know is that the researchers had actually hired an actor to play the role of a person that had been beat up and was sick and coughing, okay? And they placed him right where they would cross to kind of cut through campus to get to the building they were at. So so they had this guy, this actor there, and he's <coughs> coughing and he's like on there. And then one by one, they'd send these theological students that had this message, said, you're late, quick, run over there. And so they'd be making their way and they'd pass this guy and they'd see him and, and they're like, I, I've got to get my message. And they'd... And, some of these guys literally walked over the man as he's coughing, <coughs> and they'd walk over him. You know what they found? 90% of those students that were told, you've got to run over there and deliver this message, 90% of them passed over the man who was beat up and who was you know, feigning that he was sick. I don't know what they were thinking, like, whoa, what are you doing here, man? You know, I'd love to help, but I'm going to deliver a message on the Good Samaritan. I'm sorry, I've got to run. And so they passed him right by. And, and I don't know what, I mean, think about it. You know, you're, when you're presenting the truth, presenting the message, you're deeply convicted by what you're speaking about. I, I mean, I can't imagine, like, they're going through that parable. and like, you know, this looks strangely familiar to me. I just don't know the point of application. I don't know what was going through their head, but 90% of them passed over the object of the whole message that they were giving. And when we hear that, we're going, something's not right. It just shouldn't be that way. I mean, think of it. If anybody should know, those guys should know and they should respond, right? I mean, there should be a direct correlation to what we believe and how we behave, right? And if not, there's a breakdown. Now, you know, let's take a little time out here. Likely, 
Most of those guys, maybe all of those guys, were truly believers in Christ. And which one of us hasn't bypassed opportunities where we were in a position to help and do something and we skipped over it? But the reason that that's so bothersome to us is that we believe there should be a direct correlation to what you believe and how you behave. And that is exactly what James is going to tackle. The whole book that James wrote, all five chapters, it has a two-word theme. It is maturity matters. And he is writing this whole book from a pastor's perspective to lead us into maturity. And God has been using this book throughout the ages to do just that. Chapter one, he gave us the mindset of those who are maturing in Christ. And beginning in chapter two, all the way through chapter five, verse six, he starts listing out major obstacles to a maturing faith in Christ. And last week was heavy hitting. And he started out of the blocks by saying there is a need to develop a love that sees through labels. That was chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This week, he's going to address another huge obstacle that every one of us face, and that is the need to understand the nature of a living faith. I have to tell you this, I desperately want to know. I don't want to be a theological student. I got some degrees, but there is no reality or application in my life. I want to know What does it look like to have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ being lived out in my life? And I know you do, too. In fact, we desperately want to know what is this relationship between our faith in Christ and how do we live in the world, these good works? And let me just tell you this one statement. Our the reality of our faith is seen by the way that we live. The reality of our faith is seen by. By the way that we live. And so he's going to jump right in. Chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Ooh, good question. And so he's, he's going to start addressing the issue between faith and works. Now, who is our faith in? Well, One of the principles of interpreting the Bible is you always see things in context. If you start taking a verse here or there, or you pick your passages and you take them out of context, you can frankly make the Bible say whatever you want. When you come across something difficult, what you want to start doing is examining the passages before and after, because that's going to give you great clues of what he's talking about. And there is a theme to what he's talking about. Who is our faith in or what is it in? Chapter 2, verse 1. What is the, he began this whole section by telling us our faith is in who? My brethren, do not hold your faith in our, who's the faith in? In our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith in Christ. He is Lord, speaking of his deity. Jesus, that is the human name that was given to him. It actually means salvation. Christ, speaking of his role as the Messiah, the one who would truly pay the penalty for our sins. Now, when it comes to our faith in Christ or relationship with God, God's good news, his gospel is it salvation comes only through faith by grace. In fact, to make it crystal clear, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight, and nine. These are verses worthy of being memorized. He says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. When When someone gives you a gift, all you can do is receive it. You can't say, 
that was really nice of you to go to Toys R Us and buy me these silly bands. I've always wanted them. And here, let me pay you back. For, no, you know, that's, a gift is a gift, however silly that might be for the silly bands. But God gives us salvation. It is a gift that we receive. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works that no one should boast. You don't do good things and God says, oh, that's the kind of guy I want in my group or on my team or in my camp. You're doing good things. You're a Christian. No, the reality is we've done lots of bad things. We're evil. We're sinful. God sends a savior to pay the penalty for our sins. We believe that Christ died and paid the penalty for our sins. When we truly believe we are united by faith with Christ. That is God's gospel, the good news regarding our salvation. But there is a role of good works. In fact, the very next verse in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is what's taking place. We are saved by grace. We're united with Christ. Christ actually takes up residency in our life. And as a result, we start producing good works. We do activity that's, that speaks of our allegiance with Christ. There are, because of our belief, there are changes of behavior. There are things that we do. And so that is what he is addressing here in chapter 2, verse 14. He's asking, hey, let's talk about faith and works. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says? That is a key word here. This is someone who is giving lip service. He's saying, yeah, I got faith. Someone says it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that he actually has it. He's actually just making claim. I have faith. Someone says he has faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? There's two questions being asked. First of all, he's asking if you have if you say that you have faith, but there's no works, there's nothing that comes flowing out of your life. He asks, what use is that? And in the Greek tense, it's it. You see that the answer to that is there's no use. But there's a second question that's asked. Can that faith save him? You might want to underline that word that. Let me tell you why this chap, this particular passage is deemed perhaps one of the most difficult of all the New Testament and has led to all sorts of wrong views about salvation, about God. I think a big part of it is that when the King James Bible was translated, there is an article that is that that word that or could be translated even the but it's probably that here. When the King James, when they translated, they skipped it. And so it reads, and even if you have even a new King James Version, it probably reads, can faith save him? And so this is problematic because we know that we are saved by faith. And yet this is saying, can, can just faith alone, faith in Christ alone, can, can that save? Yes, it can. But it has to be more than just an intellectual assent. And so he says, can that kind of faith, can a faith that is just words only, but there's no reality and no fruit that ever comes out of life. Can a lip service only faith truly save you? Well, the answer to that is no. And so he's going to say, let me, I've got your full attention now. Okay. He's going to give you an illustration. He's going to give you an illustration to compare what faith without works looks like. It's similar to like words of compassion without the real thing, like acts of compassion. So can that kind of faith save him, a lip service only faith? Saying like, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. And by the way, this this is going to get really heavy hitting real quick. I just want to forewarn you. Because we live in a culture 
that gives lip service, like, oh, yeah, I believe. Oh, yeah, I believe in God, uh, Christ. Yeah, gospel, whatever that is, I, I believe it. And he says, do you really know Christ? Because if you do, there should be a reality to your faith. Now, to drive this home, he's going to say, let's have this little illustration about compassion here. If there is, verse 15, a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. There is an obvious need in a brother or sister, like, for instance, in our church. They need clothing. They're starving yet. They can't feed their kids. And, they're, and they have this real need. And, verse 16, and one of you says to them, oh, and you've got the right words. Listen, this, I mean, these words warm your heart. If you're looking for, like, what am I going to put on the Christmas card this year? Here you go. Go in peace. Be warmed and be filled. Doesn't that sound good? Ooh, those are the right words. Go in peace. Peace of God. And be warmed. Let your heart be warmed. And Jews be filled with the sustenance of God. But notice what he says. And yet, you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What in the world are you thinking? He says, what use is that? If you're just rhetoric... You just got words. You can say real nice things. You can speak truth. But there is no reality. You're, you're not moved to meet the need. He says, you're not compassionate. There's a lot of people, oh yeah, we should help the poor. But they never do. We should have concern about hurting people. They could care less. Let's take it home. In this room. There are people that are grieving, going through cancer. Some of them are facing serious difficulties. Financial hardship. Without a job for a long period of time, there are folks that are going through a deep depression. And you might even be aware of it. And you say, oh, hope you'll be all right. See you later. Don't talk to me. And you run away. Friends, there is, there, that's wrong. There's something missing. You say that you're compassionate, you really care, but in reality, you really don't. He's saying, what kind of use is that if you're that kind of person? So he says, verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. You know, by the way, this isn't like, well, just James came up with this. Uh-uh. John, John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Listen how very closely his words are. He says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, let's not have more than lip service. Let's have reality. Let the faith show. Remember what Jesus had to say? He says, guys, I'm going to make this really easy for you. You will know them by their fruits. Do you find figs from uh, uh, thistles? You get, no, you get, you get little sticky things that are real bothersome from thistles. You don't get figs. Do you, uh, do you gather grapes from thorn bushes? Uh, no, no. If you want grapes, the last thing you want are thorn bushes. Jesus says, you know what? You will know them by their fruits. James is saying the same thing. If there is truly a reality to your faith, which will include truly having good doctrine and knowing the truth and being able to speak it, but if you're really of the truth and you know Christ, there's going to be a living reality coming out of your life. You know, it's really interesting Paul actually was addressing the opposite problem in the book of Romans. James is, uh, is dealing with this problem. People that were giving lip service to, oh yeah, I, I believe that. I have faith. I'm a person of faith. 
Okay, but there was no true reality of a living relationship with Christ. Paul in Romans was dealing with the problem that these Jews were just clinging to their good works. They had a salvation by doing good things. They had all these ladders and all these things they were supposed to do and not supposed to do. They had these lists and they had these rules and and they were trying to follow them and they were very antagonistic to everybody that wasn't. They were legalistic. And Paul was actually addressing the opposite problem. But either one is an error. One is antinomianism, living as it doesn't matter what God has to say, and there's no reality to it. The other is a legalist who is just trying to follow and keep rules, just to be like, well, God will be happy with me if I do this. Neither one of them is the living faith. There was a story told of a European queen, and she went to the theater one day. She, it was during the winter. She had her coachman drive her to the theater, and it was a, it was a tragedy that she watched, and this, apparently the queen was deeply moved as she sat up there in her little box and she was crying and weeping the whole time. She was so moved by what everything was happening there on the, on, the, on the theater there at the show. She got done sniffling and wiping away all her tears from her being so deeply moved by this experience. She went out to her coachman who had frozen to death in the winter as he sat there. And she could care less. She, she was completely unmoved by the plight of the man. In fact, she was directly involved and she was directly responsible, but she could care less. See, there's something wrong with that whole idea that, oh, you could be deeply moved by something you see in a theater or in a movie or by a song, but you really don't care about the people in your lives. Friends, we live in America. It's like almost like fantasy land. People can get so moved and so caught up in some song or some movie or some cause And yet they are caring less about the people in their lives, family members, people in their church, in their neighborhood. These things should not be. And this is what James is addressing. If you start living where you basically give lip service, minus the fact that you're actually reaching out and have the reality of your faith. He says that kind of faith that is useless. You know why we exercise and do good deeds, good works? Engage people, love them, show compassion, help them, involve ourselves in ministry. It's not to earn salvation, because you can't. Do you know why you do it? It is to express the reality that we have it. That we truly know Christ. It's because we are newborn. The Bible says when you place your faith in Christ, you are a new creature. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. There is a new birth that has taken place in your life, and you start living and acting new. it, It has to happen because you are in Christ. New birth leads to new life. Now, that new birth, it comes by an act of grace. But as we, we have to grow and mature, think of it. A newborn baby just doesn't spring up and just, oh, I can, I can hold a job. I can balance a checkbook. I can feed kids. No, it's a pattern of growth and investment and environment in their life. And so it is with us. If today you've placed your faith in Christ, you begin a pattern of starting to grow and mature as you're exposed to his word, as you learn how to pray, as you're involved in a church, if you have others who come into your life, as you go through trials, you start growing and maturing and you develop a mature faith. And that's what he's saying here. Friends, when you have your real authentic faith in Christ, it's going to start manifesting itself with works. Now he says, Uh, Verse 18, but if someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
key word there. You see that word show? He's saying, can you really show me, demonstrate, display that you believe apart from ever doing anything? And that's that's what he's driving at there. Is that is that possible? Can you do it? It's impossible, actually, to show your faith without your works. So he says, and James is so good. He's just like coming up with illustrations. He's, he's so like Jesus, you know, just grabbing things left and right. And he says, verse 19, you believe that God is one. OK, remember, he's writing to these Jewish believers that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he, he quotes them something they say every morning and every week, evening. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, that the Lord your God is one. Speaking of a compound oneness. Cool. Yes. I say that all the time. You you believe that God is one. And they say, absolutely, we believe that. They says, well, get you do well. But you know what? Guess what? The demons also believe and shudder. They're like, we're not liking this so much here. Wait, the demons, the demons. Wait a second here. Demons are angelic beings who have aligned themselves with Satan. They happen to have complete Orthodox theology. They see things as they really are. Now, they've aligned themselves with Satan, but let me tell you, their theology is very good. They believe everything that is true about God. They believe that this book is from God, that it is inspired. They believe that Jesus truly went to the cross, that he paid for, he atoned for all the sins of all who would believe. They absolutely believe that. They believe completely in the resurrection. They witnessed it. It led to the complete... Uh, complete condemnation of their future reality. They believe that the only way that a person could ever escape hell is by truly believing in Christ. They know that. They will, that's why they will do anything they can to keep anybody from truly placing their faith in Christ. It's happening even now. They, their, their theology is perfect. They believe that Christ is coming back. He's had this time where he's come. He has ascended to the Father. Jesus said, I'm going to come back. I want you to take this good news, the gospel, that you're saved by grace through faith. I want you to spread it throughout the everywhere in this world, and I'm going to return. And we're going to separate the sheep from the goats. He told, they believe all of that. They, they have a much better understanding of the second coming than probably even the best and finest theologian. They have excellent theology. So what's the problem? Isn't it all about just having the right theology and knowing the right things to say and believing the right things? You know what the problem is? They hate God and they hate the theology. They don't love God. There's not obedience to him. They don't want to serve him. They don't want to walk with him. They're not interested in that whatsoever. They hate God. And that's the difference there. The demons, they got good theology. But you know what they don't have? They don't have an abiding, living Loving faith. And friends, there's a lot of people that have good theology. Let's take this home. Let's take it in my life. For years, I could recite prayers by rote. I can give you the Apostles' Creed and do a math problem in my head at the same time. I've done it. Every week, there are people that say the right thing. They have Good doctrine if you listen to what the words that are coming out of their mouth. But there's no reality. They're not thinking about it. They're not like, I trust in this. I believe in this. This is true. Friends, you and I can go through lip service really quickly. For instance, we can sing worship songs 
about God. And you could be thinking about your roast, like, oh, did I put it in the right temperature? And, and you're singing the songs, I love you, Lord, and oh, man, my shopping list, and oh, am I going to have time to get that in? And you're, you know what? You see what's happened there? There's no reality. It's not supposed to be this way. He's, there's folks that have gone through a baptism at their church or gone through membership, and they're, they're sitting there, and they're hoping that that clergy guy up there is saying the right things. And, he, and then they'll even have the things listed there, and they'll even say, you say, I do at this point. So they go, go believe, in, believe in that God and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there's three in one. Do you believe that? I do. And, then, and they go through, and they're, they're agreeing with the absolute correct doctrine. Problem is, there's no reality. They don't truly trust in it. That's what James is addressing here. You know what he says, verse 19? You believe that God is one. You've got some good theology. Guess what? You do well. But the demons also believe and shudder. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works, faith that doesn't generate works, there is no true reality, says it's useless. It, it lacks productivity. It's, it fruit, it's fruitless. Some of you are familiar with Naperville, Illinois. It's a suburb of West Chicago. There's a church that apparently celebrated its 25th anniversary. Now, uh, it's a pretty big deal. They built their nice church building there, and they had this nice steeple, and they had the belfry. But as it is with church projects, when you're building, you ran out of funds. And so they didn't have money to put bells in. Okay, that was always the plan. We're going to have these nice, cool bells in our belfry, right? Well, they don't have any money, so we're going to have to do something else. So on the 25th anniversary, though, they, uh, they resolved that problem. They got some bells and they installed them and they unveiled them. And there's just something different about these bells, though. Um, these bells, actually, they never ring. Now, it's not because there's like a city ordinance like we don't we can't have noise in our town. I mean, we have dump trucks and garbage trucks, but we can't have bells ringing. No city or no, there's no city ordinance like that. And it wasn't because the neighbors like, oh, they put those bells up there. The last thing I want is some hymns playing with some bells. I don't want to hear that in my neighborhood. No, nothing like that. No neighbors complain. Do you know why there's no ringing of bells from these bells? It's because they're made from resin. They're, they're fake. They're just plastic. They look really good. There they are. They look like great bells. They should be able to ring and ring. But they're fake. They're not the real thing. It's kind of like someone who says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to such and such church. But they never have truly placed their faith in Christ. They don't truly believe, and hence it doesn't ring true. See, that's the issue that James is addressing. Your faith is in who? Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? He's going to produce fruit from that kind of life. That's just the way it works when you're a newborn, physically or spiritually. Now, he's going, maybe they still don't get it. And he's going to drive it home with three illustrations of living faith. Abraham... Rahab, and just one about the human body and spirit. So he's going to give these three illustrations of what a living faith looks like. Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Okay, problem passage. Whoa. Did you guys, did you, did your Bible say that, what I just read? How many of you are like, oh boy, woo, woo, woo. This, is, this is contrary to everything I've ever believed. Right there, how about that? Right there, it's in the Bible. Let me tell you why this passage has been perplexing 
and has caused great amounts of confounding amongst Christians since its inception. It's because it's not understood correctly. And if you want to see how perplexing this could be, let's go along for the ride. I'll read it, and then we're going to talk through it here. Verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Oh, what in the world's going on here? How, how can that be? What, someone help me here. What, justified by works? Let's talk about this. Friends, if you do not understand this, you might live in theological turmoil for the rest of your life. Because if you don't understand what is being said here, you're going to be like, I thought I was justified by grace and faith, and now it says by works, so I've got to be working hard. And you'll end up probably a real good legalist and live a very unhappy life and hurt a lot of people. I don't want that to happen. So let's talk about this. Ready for your little Greek lesson for today? The word justified, dikaiao, okay? There are two meanings to the word justified, okay? The first one is the one that we are most familiar with. It's the one that Paul uses uh, usually when he writes. And it has the idea of declaring that someone is righteous. Declare that you're right. It is an acquittal that declares someone completely justified that you are right. And we're very familiar with this. Paul wrote all sorts of things like we are justified by a gift of God's grace. We are declared right by God or we are justified by faith apart from works of law. Okay, and you're like, okay, well, that's a total contradiction, it sounds like, from here. Help me out. Or you remember, like, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are declared right by God. We accept that on the basis of faith. We have peace with God. That is the first meaning and the, and the general meaning of that word, justified. But dikaio has also a second meaning, just like many of our words have multiple meanings. That's why you have a dictionary. Have you ever noticed the one, two, three, four, five? Dikaiaho has two meanings. The second meaning is to show to be right, to exhibit, to give evidence of, to give proof of. And that is how this word is used in this passage. So like, remember, like Paul wrote that about in Romans chapter three, verse four, he says, let God be found true, though every man should be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified by your words, that your words may show forth the excellency of God. Okay. Or Jesus used the same word when he says wisdom is vindicated by her children. That word, same word translated vindicated, it's wisdom is shown in her children. And so that is how he uses this in this passage. Was not Abraham our father justified? It has the idea of showing or giving evidence of the fact that he is right by his works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, let me just tell you from context why it is that we are not made right with God by doing good works, but why we truly show that we are right with God through our good works. In fact, I'll give you four reasons, and I, I think this is really critical that you understand this. James cannot mean that Abraham's work somehow constituted righteousness before God. Let me give you the first reason why. James has already affirmed that salvation is a gracious gift. Remember in chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 17 and 18 here? Look at, look at verse 18 in chapter 1. He said, in the exercise of his will, whose will? God's will. 
he, speaking of God, brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Who brings someone new life? Who makes you a new creature? Do you do it? No, God does it. Let me give you another reason why. You see, in chapter two, he actually says he actually references in verse 23, Genesis 15, 6. And this claims that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. You see, the event where Abraham is, is called by God to go sacrifice your son. OK, remember that? I want you to Abraham come. I want you to sacrifice your son. That actually happened seven chapters later. It was back in Genesis 15, verse 6, that God declares, because you believe in me, you have faith in me, you are right. You are righteous. This event that he's referencing here was to display the fact that truly he did believe. It was a work that came as a result of the fact that he had faith. Let me give you another reason. Um, James, James fully believes that these, this work here justified is actually declaring that he truly believed that's why he demonstrated by this particular work. This event took place a long time afterward. And let me give you the fourth. James already says, what's our faith in? Is our faith in our glorious good works? No, James chapter 2, verse 1, our faith is in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. His Christology and his understanding of salvation is completely clear and absolutely dead on. We're saved by grace through faith. And a person who is saved by grace through faith, who is united with Christ, is going to manifest that life. And that's what he's saying with Abraham. That's how Abraham functions. He believed and he demonstrated our works, your works. You know what they do? They demonstrate and they develop our faith, but they never deliver you from your sin. You see, a person who thinks he can earn his way to God thinks that his good works somehow ranks merit, like climbing steps on a ladder. But that's never the case. So that's what he is talking about here. Our, our good works, they demonstrate, they display that we truly believe. And he uses Abraham as an example. And then notice what he said there in verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. What he's telling you here is we actually mature in our faith in Christ when we actually display works that come as a result of that faith. And that's, by the way, maturity is what he's after. Let me give you an illustration of what he's talking about there. Anytime you see a tree, you see this in action. You see, there is a balance between faith and works, and it's similar to like what you see in a tree. On a tree, you've got these leaves, and they're doing something called photosynthesis. The sun comes, and they're processing, and they're drawing sap from the tree. Okay? And what takes place is they, they burn that energy. That requires more sap to come. And by the fact that they've actually burned this energy, there's been some sort of uh, activity that's taken place. More sap is drawn from the tree into the leaf. If the leaf does not draw sap, okay, the leaf dies. When you and I are in Christ, we're like that little leaf on the tree. And as we exercise our faith, as we do things, as we engage in just the myriad of little things that we can do to express kindness, to show concern, to minister to others, that is, it's like, it's like utilizing that faith and it's drawing more from our relationship with Christ into our life. And that's what he is talking about here. Our faith is, see verse 22, it's 
perfected. It's made mature. And by the way, friends, that's what God wants for every single one of us. He doesn't want us to stay infants. He wants us to grow and mature. That's why he's given this book. And that's why you've got to understand this. Why we have to get this. If we don't understand the nature of living faith, immaturity is going to be our reality. In fact, this is the vision of our church. Vision of Fellowship Bible Church is very simple. We grow deep. And as we are growing deep, we are reaching out. And as you're reaching out, it requires further depth. It needs more energy more sap. And so that's what he's explaining here. We are like a fruit tree. You know when a fruit tree becomes mature? Anybody know? A fruit tree becomes mature when it's producing fruit. Fruit that can once again be reproduced in another person. And that's what we are. We are fruit. We are fruit. We know that we've become mature when our lives are investing in others. We're manifesting good works in such a way that it could actually be reproduced in another. Well, he says, you liked Abraham? And I, I think they probably understood what he said. They understood, okay, you see that they, Abraham really believes by how he manifests fruit. Now he's going to give him one that's really going to throw him for a curveball. Verse 25, how about Rahab the prostitute? Whew. Okay, everybody was really happy with Abraham. Abraham, good guy. We like Abraham. Rahab, hmm. Verse 25, he says, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Honestly, do you think that because Rahab did one thing, hiding these spies, that that made her right with God? Did that really happen? No. The word justified here, it shows, it gives evidence that she really believed. What these readers were familiar with, which you may not be familiar with, was the great statement of faith that Rahab gave. You can find it in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. When, remember, these men came to her. They were spies. They came out to spy the land. God is just about ready to destroy wicked uh, the people there. And so he says, Rahab gives this, this message here of what she really believes. She lives in Jericho. The people are wicked. God's just about ready to destroy, him, destroy them. And she says this, I know that the Lord, speaking of Yahweh, has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. And she said this, we have heard how the Lord, Yahweh, has dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And we've heard about what he's done to those kings. We've heard all these things. And then she says in verse 11, listen to her faith. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven, above, and on earth, beneath. Her faith is in who? In her good works? Like, I'll hide these spies and God's going to make me, take me and consider me righteous? No. She believed. And because she believed, it affected her behavior. And so that's what takes place here. Rahab, by the way, Rahab, Abraham, you know where you want to find him? They are actually in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. When God just spells out, you want to see what faith looks like, lived out, people who really believe that it's actually affecting their behavior? Abraham's listed. So is Rahab. In fact, Rahab is actually in the lineage of Jesus. She is the great-grandmother of David. Now, God isn't saying, you being a prostitute, that was cool, no problem there, or you're lying. No. She believed. She believed. And because she believed, it led to a change of behavior. That's what faith does. That's works. 
Our faith leads to works. When you have a saving faith in Christ, it's going to truly manifest in how you live. And then he just closes with a third illustration, verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, okay, if, you, if there's no spirit in you, your soul has merged from your body, you're dead. No pulse, no life. He says, so also faith without works is dead. If your faith in Christ, what you say, you have faith in Christ, never produces works, Reconsider, are you truly believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he desires that every person that knows him manifests the fruit that is in him. Let me tell you, the reality of our faith is seen by the way that we live. Last Sunday, I was out there in the foyer, I was meeting some folks, and um, there was a lady that told me that she had brought a, a little girl, she's four years old. This, this little girl's mom has been incarcerated, she's in prison. And she brought, and she said she wants to meet you and say hi. And, and so I meet this little girl. I get down on her level. I get down on her knees. And she's holding this little dolly. And, and she's, she told me that someone from our church bought this gift to her at Christmas, part of that angel tree project that we do. And she goes, do you think that could happen again? You know what that is? That is someone's faith in our body, being manifested in a work and touching a child's life. And that child comes through these doors. Friends, this week, as a church, we have an opportunity to be involved in ShareFest. What is ShareFest? An opportunity to sharpen up your yard tools and just show how good you are with your little power tools? Maybe. But on the other hand, it is an opportunity to demonstrate that we truly believe and that as a result of our faith in Christ, We demonstrate and we do good works because, after all, we're created for good works in Christ Jesus. Do these good works, do you go and hose somebody's yard or chop down some trees? Does that save you? No. We do it simply because we manifest the life of Christ. Every ministry, working with our kids, students, college students, our fellowship families, they are manifestations of a living faith. The reality of our faith is seen in the way that we live. I'd like to tell you the story about a man by the name of Doug Nichols. In 1967, he is serving with Operation Mobilization in India, and he contracted tuberculosis. And it was so bad, they, they put him in, the, in a sanatorium in India. And so he's run by an, a government sanatorium in India. Here is this American, and he's put in there. And he's, a, he's an evangelist. And so even though he doesn't speak anybody's, any of the language there, he has these little pamphlets that explain the gospel in their language. And he's, he's trying to give it to the other patients that are in there that are suffering from various diseases, especially TB, the nurses, the doctors, interns, and no one will have anything of it. In fact, they actually despise him. They consider him American. They consider all Americans rich. In reality, he was just as broke as they were. He didn't have anything. And he tries to give them these pamphlets. No one's taking his TB, uh, you know, you start coughing and it's uncontrollable. Well, two o'clock in the morning, he's having one of these coughing fits and he he sees across the way two in the morning. There's this older man and he's he's moaning and he's trying to like stand up and, and move. And he's crying and he's aching and making these. And, and finally, he just kind of collapses on his bed and he just starts kind of weeping. And, you know, he's like, oh, man, what's going on there? But he just kind of lays in his bed eventually falls asleep. Well, next day in the early morning, he figured out why that man was trying to struggle to get up. He was trying to get to the bathroom. 
and he didn't have the strength to get there. The place just stunk royally, and these nurses came in, and they were furious with him. Other patients were yelling at him. Uh, these nurses treated him very roughly as they were cleaning up this big mess. One of the nurses actually hit him, and this old man apparently just kind of curls up a ball, and he just starts weeping. Well, the next night, 2 in the morning, he's, Doug's having his coughing fit with his TB, and he sees the same scene of that old man trying to get up. And uh, he said, you know, I, I didn't want to be involved. I don't like bad smells. But I, I got out of my bed. I walked over there. This guy, this old man, he was so sick, so weakened by his condition. He said I was able to pick him up. And he picked this guy up and he took him to that little room. And there's just a hole in the floor. And he held this guy up. And then he, after that was all done, he carried him back and put him back in his bed. This, he said, this old man, he, he smiled and he kissed me on the cheek and he said something I didn't understand. And, and I, I smiled and just went back to my bed. Well, the next morning he was awakened and, and one of the patients was giving him this cup of hot tea. And, and, uh, and so he received the tea, but the patient, he was pointing to that, that brochure, that pamphlet that he had tried to give him a few days earlier. He, said, he, wanted, he wants one. So he, so he gave him one and, and sure enough, other patients... One by one came and they, they, I want that literature. I want that little booklet there. Doctors, nurses, interns. He kept requesting this, this material about the gospel that he was trying to give and no one wanted. And several weeks later, an evangelist that actually spoke the language came and told him, there are several people in this hospital who have now placed their faith in Christ as a result of reading this literature. What happened? See, the reality of this man's faith was expressed in how he lived. And God used it for the furthering of his kingdom. And he fully intends in our schools, in our neighborhoods, where we live throughout this world, this is how the gospel will go forth. We are going to grow deep in our relationship with Christ and we will reach out and we will bear fruit. And James says it will be no other way. The idea of having little Christian clubs, we all have nice little theology, but it affects no, it has no bearing on our life, does not work. It never worked with Jesus, and it will not work today. The reality of our faith is seen by the way in which we live. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this amazing passage. It is difficult, and yet it is comprehensible. When we take the time to study it out, because we do not want to miss what you have called us to. And perhaps we have missed for so long. Maybe there is someone here who has been trying to be good and realized just flat can't do that. But they just realize right now, would you draw them to the son? He's the savior. We're the sinner. Would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know all about my sin. Me even trying to be good and knowing that I can't die. I turn from my sin and I trust your son right now. I put all my faith in him. And you, Lord, who have started this good work, will you bring it to completion and maturity in my life? And Lord, for all of us, may we really consider, do we really have a faith that gets translated into how we live? Or has there been some sort of breakdown? Because we understand now that that's useless. And you want us to be useful. Useful in your hand, useful for your kingdom. So we yield our lives to you. Would you bear much fruit through us for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.